Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. Art Markman. Art is a cognitive scientist, an author, a blogger, and a podcaster. He's also a professor at the University of Texas in Austin, where he teaches in the Department of Psychology and Marketing and is the founding director of the Human Dimensions of Organizations Training Center. Art is also the co-host of the Two Guys on Your Head podcast for KUT Radio in Austin and has also either authored or co-authored several books, including Smart Thinking, Smart Change, and The Habits of Leadership. Art, can you tell me a little bit about your background and some of the projects you're working on and what inspired you to get into cognitive science? Sure. So I, I'm a, a, I am a cognitive scientist. I study the way people think. I am interested in research topics like how people reason and uh, what motivates people to do the things they do, how people make decisions. And um, I've been doing this kind of research for you know, 30 years now. Uh, as an undergrad, I thought maybe I'd go into economics or maybe physics. And as I like to say, I took an economics class and I didn't like it. And I took a physics class and it didn't like me. <laughs> and uh, I discovered that the stuff that I was really fascinated by was uh, had to do with the way the human mind works. And, and uh, I was uh, equal parts computational person if, if I'd been born later when computers weren't slow and stupid like they were in the mid-1980s, I, I might have become a computer scientist or an AI person, but having grown up when I did, uh, it, it seemed like I'd make more progress studying people than, than studying machines. So uh, so I, I went into, into psychology and, and focused a lot on basic research for a long time and then realized that almost everybody I know has a mind and almost nobody knows how that mind works. And so I've, I've now devoted a lot of my time to also bringing insights from cognitive science to other people who haven't studied the field so that they might live their lives a little differently. What, what are some of the things that really stand out to you that you've discovered and, and you feel like people, like the average population, just would never, never know or wouldn't think about? Yeah. Well, I, you know, for one thing, I think most of us have very little insight into how motivation works. And so this is why so few people succeed at their New Year's resolutions. You resolve to get in shape or drink less or or be nicer to people or check your email less often. And by the beginning of February, you're back to doing whatever you were going to do, uh, which has the advantage that you get to make the same New Year's resolution again the next year. But I think part of what people don't understand is that the motivational system has two components in it. It's got, it's got a, a system in it that drives you to act, and then it has a second system that if you've engaged a goal that you don't want to carry out, it's got a second system that can try and stop you from doing that. But that second system, that stop system, is much less efficient than that first system, the, the one that drives you to act. And so what happens is people set these goals where they tell themselves, I'm going to do a particular thing less often next year, or I'm going to stop doing this particular thing, which puts all the pressure on the brakes, rather than reprogramming that system that drives you to act, which, uh, which is the one that actually ultimately has the biggest influence on your behavior. And so learning how that motivational system works gives you a real leg up when you want to change your behavior. Can you walk us through how that system works? Sure. 
Sure. So uh, one of the things that happens is that uh, this this system that drives you to act, it's I call it the go system. It, it involves a bunch of brain mechanisms deep inside the brain. And what they do is two fundamental things. The first is that they engage the goals that you have, which drives your attention towards things that are related to achieving the goal and away from things that will prevent you from achieving that goal. This is why, for example, anybody who's ever bought a car suddenly realizes that they've noticed all the other people on the road driving the same car, even if they'd never noticed it before, because because now they're focused on that particular goal. And so that information becomes really obvious and salient in the environment. Uh, and this happens for all sorts of things. It can happen if you're trying to mail a letter, suddenly you notice where the mailboxes are. But, you know, if you really need to eat, suddenly you notice where the M&Ms are too. And so uh, that, that GO system is very efficient at helping you to achieve your goals. And it's also uh, the source of creating habits which are memories that relate the situation you're in to the action you're trying to perform so that when you're faster to remember what you're supposed to do than to think about what you're supposed to do, you have a habit. This drives a tremendous amount of our behavior. And what you're really trying to do when you're changing your behavior is to focus on the specific actions you're trying to take that will help you to engage that go system in a different way, and then to try to find a consistent set of situations in which you can carry out that behavior so that you will consistently be reminded of that behavior in that situation so that you will develop new habits that will be more sustaining than what you were doing before. I wonder if you can go even one step further. What are the different parts of the brain that are doing this? Yeah, sure. So, um, so if you dig deep into the brain, a lot of the, the structures that are important for this GO system are, are part of what are called the basal ganglia. They are, if you were to dissect the brain of a, a mouse or a rat or a deer, you'd find those same brain structures there. Uh, those brain structures are really crucial for this GO system. They then project out to areas of the cortex that are part of the conceptual system that allows you to recognize that you are, for example, looking, you know, looking for a car or looking for M&Ms. But, but it is that, it is those, the basal ganglia that are really driving that attention to things. And then the stop system is really mediated by areas in the brain that are in the frontal lobes of the brain. So if you think of the brain as looking sort of like a pair of boxing gloves set the wrong way around, the fingers of that boxing glove are, are what are called the frontal cortex, the, the area of the brain. And that's the area of the brain that's most elaborated in humans compared to the brains of other creatures. And there's a particular area in the frontal cortex just above your eyes that's called the orbitofrontal cortex. So orbit for eyes, frontal for those, for that frontal part of the brain. And that area of the brain is, is part, is, is a crucial part of that circuit that actually helps you to stop a behavior you don't want to perform. And so one of the reasons that that stop system is less efficient than the go system is, is because that those areas of the brain just haven't haven't had nearly as much time to evolve to be efficient in the in in the same way that the that the basal ganglia, which are phylogenetically really really old, have uh, you know have had have had a lot of time to optimize. And so, um, you know, so that's one of the reasons why why stopping behavior is just not as efficient as reprogramming that system that 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 involves those older brain structures. Something else I had read that these older brain structures, the messages travel faster 
right? We feel things before we think think about them or rationalize them. Yeah. So so one of the things to think about with this is that that these systems evolved to create action, and so they 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 will allow you to act quickly. Whereas a lot of these these cortical systems, the ones of the cortex is that outer gray surface of the brain. A lot of these cortical structures allow us to do more deliberative thinking, which is is a slower process. So, so if if I have to take to, to to carry out a series of steps, that's got to that's got to happen in time. And so it's not just a matter of being reminded what to do in that situation. It's actually going through a sequence of steps to think about, okay, so what is the situation I'm in? What should I do right now? And of course, humans use language to control our thought process. You know, that, that they're, they're, the, the, the psychologist Lev Vygotsky, who was a Russian psychologist from the 1920s, made a point a long time ago, and it turns out I think he was absolutely right, that, that thought involves a lot of inner speech. We, we actually use our language ability not just to communicate with other people, but actually to control our own brain. And, and so we will actually literally talk to ourselves internally as a way of controlling our thought process to move from one thing to the next, to create sequences of thoughts. And, and that, that plays out over time. So it's a lot slower. It's really interesting because I've, I've been reading a lot and having a lot of conversations where people are advocating um, like a lot of ideas around mindfulness and creating space between thoughts and not because we do have this internal dialogue and sometimes that internal dialogue can short circuit and we end up on repeat with some messages that might not be serving us as well as other messages might be serving us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. There's there's a lot of what what uh, what clinical psychologists have called rumination. So, so the word ruminant, which comes from animals that chew their cud, like cows, uh, we, we ruminate over thoughts. So we get trapped in these cycles of thoughts, and they're often negative thoughts about bad things that have happened or things that we're uh, frustrated or anxious about or, or things that we're concerned about. And of course, sometimes that cycle of thoughts can be a benefit. If you're, if you're really facing a serious problem and you have to plan what to do, chewing over that for a while, I think, can be a good thing. But, you know, the fact is that our world is a pretty safe place. And so a lot of the cycles of thoughts we get into are about things that aren't inherently dangerous. They're not going to kill us. Uh, and they're not even going to necessarily cause a crisis or catastrophe in our lives. But they still cause a lot of anxiety. And I think where these mindfulness techniques are really beneficial is in helping you to recognize when you've re-entered one of these rumination states around something that isn't really that important. And so you, you run the risk of getting really anxious about something that, you know, frankly doesn't matter that much. You've mentioned multiple times this idea of reprogramming our brain. How would somebody go about doing that? So basically the brain is a, is a learning or organ. It, it, is trying to change physiologically in ways that will support new memories for things. And so a lot of what we're doing when we're reprogramming ourselves is trying to engage in a different set of behaviors 
that that will allow us to learn new things. And there's several ways to do that. Of course, one of them is to do things like listening to this podcast right now where you're being exposed to new information, which will change your brain. I mean, the, you know, you and I right now are changing other people's brains, uh, which is a, an awesome responsibility. And and so w- one of the things that we have to do is is to put ourselves in situations in which we learn new things, lay down these new memories, uh, and and give us other information that we can use to make decisions or to to uh, to to try and do things in different ways. The next thing that we need to do is to actually break out of the habitual modes of action that we've taken and and to really try new things, to eat new foods or to take up new hobbies. And and what what those new activities do is that they force you to think about your actions rather than just do things habitually. So now you're being mindful about what actions you're taking. And by doing that, by taking new actions and particularly taking them consistently in particular situations, you are laying down new action patterns that can become habitual in the future. And so you are you are breaking yourself out of old ways of doing things. And that is essentially reprogramming that system to do different things. It's so interesting. I, th- I think of uh, visualize this as like you, somebody takes a step in a different direction and they just keep taking steps and eventually end up in a new place. Right. And um, and I see this as a, a relationship dating coach. I see this all the time in relationships, right? Like somebody ends a relationship and... Uh, I was having a conversation yesterday with a woman who said she had to like sage her apartment and then she went through this like ritual <laughs> to try to release. But I know a lot of people yeah. just like get up and move, right? Because they're yeah. like, there's so many uh, of their daily habits and so many things that they're anchored to that associate with that relationship. They just sort of feel like they have to scramble the whole thing. And so they oh, go somewhere. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, 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 I completely agree. And of course, the, it, it creates a, diff- a secondary problem too, which is you run the risk of recapitulating that relationship in the next one if, if, you, don't, if you don't make some changes. So, so you get out of one bad relationship and then you immediately get into another one and reestablish a bunch of the same patterns. Yeah, I definitely can see where uh, reprogramming the brain could be helpful there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's funny, right? When people go into therapy, um, one of the things that therapists will do is ask a lot of questions about about your upbringing, you know, your relationship with your parents and stuff like that. And it's not some weird Freudian thing that, you know, subconsciously you're you're doing some crazy thing. It's It's really that a lot of your communication patterns are laid down early on, you create these habits in the way that you communicate with, with your parents, with your siblings. And so, you know, if, if your, if your parents, for example, tended to be people who punished for, for a lot of infractions, you become very skilled as a child in hiding the things you've done wrong, which then becomes a habit in your interpersonal relationships with an adult. And so suddenly you start, you, you get in a romantic relationship and you stop telling your 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 new partner about things that that might potentially be reflect badly on you not because that person does anything that that that's a problem but because your mode when when you engage with people is to, is to have this habit to withhold information that might not reflect well on you because you got in trouble for it when you were a kid 
And so you have to break out of that. You know, you have to create this new trusting relationship. And it's really hard to do that if your habit has always been to hide that information. So how does somebody do that? Uh, well, that's one of the reasons therapists can be really good is to is to point out that you're doing that. And part of it is to practice is, is and, and part of that is to be really open and honest about your flaws with with someone you're you're in a relationship with to say, look, I'm really bad at this. And and to say, I need some help. I'm you know, it, when I when I'm not telling you things, you know, remind me that it's OK to tell you things that that may that where I may not be perfect. And, and because you have to practice it, you have to practice recognizing, oh, I said this thing that in my past life, and I don't mean in some spiritual sense, I just mean previously in my life, that, that in the past, that, that that's the sort of thing that had gotten me in trouble. But, but by saying it now and recognizing actually things worked out well, uh, I can learn to face uh, the fear that I have of, uh, uh, of actually exposing myself uh, emotionally to, to, to somebody else. I think that's such a great point. A couple of, a couple of personal stories popped up. Um, I was dating this girl, and I remember I was saying, oh, I really like, crave human touch and right now. I want to see you. And she's like, human touch or my touch? <laughs> and <I was> like, <laughs> the answer was both. But um, yeah. the second the second response was scarier, right? And uh, yeah. And so, But having her give me that feedback like allowed me to guide how, to, how she needed me to behave with her and what she needed me to communicate with uh, to her. And another example of that is I invited her uh, at one point to New York and and um, she goes, oh, I'm just not feeling it. And I said, what? <laughs> and she goes, I'm just like not really feeling it. Um, and I said, well, I really want you to come out. And she's like, yeah, but in the, in, it was like the language I was using, her tone of voice. And she's like, I'm like, well, I, I do really want you to come out. And she goes, um, FaceTime me. And so I FaceTimed her <laughs> and I just told her, I said, I don't think I'm fucking good at this. <laughs> I just like really don't think that I'm good. I think like this has popped up in previous relationships. I think like this is hard for me. And, and, um, yeah. and it was like easier once I, I had recognized that that was hard for me and communicated it. Cause she, I, I think in past relationships, people thought I was like, just not really in, into them, but I was like, it was a yeah. problem with, with language and I don't know how I picked it up or where I picked it up, but I was just like, like I uh, started bringing up anxiety and froze mm -hmm. up and like, yeah. but just telling her, Hey, I'm, I, I don't think I'm good at this. I suck at this, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. this is what I, but like it made it easier cause she understood. Yeah. Um, oh, I think that's, I think that's great. And you know, it's funny too. Cause I think we, we, we sometimes learn these, these, um, behaviors that give us, give us plausible deniability. That's exactly you know, like yeah. like I can I can ask you for something, but if I haven't really asked you for it, then if you say no, I can say, well, I didn't really mean that, which, you know, that there's a there's a stage of a relationship where that might work. But at some point, you know, you, you've got to open yourself to to the chasm, right, to, to the to, to saying something where theoretically someone could say no and it would hurt <laughs> and. Uh, and, 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 and the, the thing is, if you're not, if you're not open to that hurt, you're also not open to the highs that you can create from that. And I think that, that people pick up on that. People pick up that you're withholding some aspect of yourself and, and, you know, to, 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 to make a relationship get, you know, get closer. There, there has to be that openness, but most of us have developed all sorts of habits that close off that pattern of communication. 
and it 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 and and we don't even realize we're doing it, which is why that's what I love about that story is is that you were talking to someone who was self aware enough to say there was something wrong in the way that you're communicating that, and I just can't do it. Um, as opposed to blowing it off and, and, and either, either stepping away or, or agreeing to do this thing, even though, uh, it wasn't communicated in a way that made them feel good. And, and it provides that opportunity for both of you to, to grow and to grow a little bit closer. And then that's kind of cool. Yeah, it is awesome. I mean, in, in previous relationships or relationship, yeah, relationships prior to that, I dated people where they had fell off and then they would just say something like months later. And, yeah. and there's sort of this disconnection and I didn't realize at the time, but some of it was definitely tied to trauma and, uh, like acquiring trauma, whether they're small traumas or larger traumas that sort of caused me to change my behavior or on, going one level deeper, sort of rewired my brain to whatever. I mean, you described the plausible deniability, but like just also just like kind of going into like a freeze mode a little bit, like, um, where I, yeah, I just couldn't fully, I mean, at one point it was worse. I couldn't really connect with my emotions as well as I had had uh, prior to some of the traumas and like, just like, it, it, but it, but it's interesting. It'd pop up in my relationship and it wasn't until I started dating somebody who was self-aware and, and had the ability to speak up in the moment where I was like, that was what I was looking for. Yeah. Or that's what yeah. I, I needed. So, um, no, that's great. Yeah. It's, 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 it's interesting. Um, you have so many really cool ideas. Well, what are some of the other things that you, you've picked up through the course of your your study on things that people wouldn't or might not realize about the brain and how they affect us? Yeah, so uh, you know, to, to go in a in a very different direction, I did a I did a book, gosh, six seven years ago now called Smart Thinking, that was really about how to how to just be more creative in the way that you approach things, and and what's interesting about that is. A lot of your ability to to be creative in any sphere of your life requires knowing a lot. So I think we often discount the value of of learning a bunch of things and learning a bunch of things that are not you don't where you don't know in advance why you need to know them. Later you figure out that they matter. And so there's a there's a couple of pieces to this that I think are really important. You know, one is if we think about other habits we've gotten into. We through through schooling, if you think about, you, you know, school that you go to from kindergarten all the way through college or graduate school, when you when you enter a class, the, the person teaching the class gives you a syllabus that that has the information on it that that you that you're supposed to learn in the class. And that presumes that the person who's teaching the class knows what it is you're going to need to know in the future. And clearly there, there's a goal, excuse me, a goal for the class in mind. But. But there's there's a this greater presumption that someone else can tell you all the knowledge you're going to need to be successful in your life is that's simply not true, and so and so we try to be too efficient in what we learn. But if you look at the at the really creative people, they are people who just who've learned all kinds of stuff with for no apparent reason, and then later discovered that 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 mattered, right? So you know James Dyson you know, was able to, to, to have the insight about the vacuum, uh, the Dyson vacuum, because he knew about sawmills. He didn't think in advance, gosh, I, 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 this is going to be the root of, of an idea that's going to create a $400 million a year company. <laughs> he just, he just learned a bunch of stuff and then later found out it was useful. And, and so we have to stop being so efficient at stuff. You know, as a college professor, my least favorite question students ask me is, is this going to be on the exam? I mean, it drives me crazy. 
because because how do I you know it because because is is the only stuff you're supposed to learn the stuff that I'm putting on the exam. And so now when, when students come to me, they say, is this going to be on the exam? I say, yes, but it might not be my exam. <laughs> you know? I'm I mean, sure that drives them crazy. Well, yeah, but, but, you know, but, but I'm trying to, I'm trying, you know, I, I follow that up by telling them, I mean, how am I supposed to know what, what knowledge is going to be the crucial thing for you in the rest of your life? And it, it means that we need to keep trying things. I mean, in my mid thirties, I took up the saxophone, um, you know, just for the heck of it, right? Because because I figured, you know, well, partly because I didn't want to regret when I got older that I'd never learned to play the saxophone. But, you know, it's helped me in all kinds of ways in my life. Uh, but but at the time, I just thought it'd be fun. And and you know, and I and I think a lot of people think, well, you know, uh, you know, they get to their they get to be in their in their twenties and thirties, and they think, well, you know, I never learned to do this, so I guess I'm never going to learn. Like if you didn't if you didn't take an instrument when you were in high school, well, I guess that's it. You're just you're, you're you know how cool would it be to have learned to do this? But I can't because I'm not 18 anymore. I mean that's ridiculous, right? To, you know, I went out I went out to a music store. I got the name of a music teacher, and a week later I was taking music lessons. And you know, and I was terrible for a long time. I mean, my goal was in 10 years I wouldn't suck. But um, did you get there? And, uh, yeah, I mean, I play a band now. Actually. Oh, do you really? Uh, That's awesome. Yeah, I'm in a, I'm in, a, I'm in a ska band. Oh, really? Anybody, That's so anybody cool. Anybody in Austin, Texas, come on out. We, we, we're, we're a band called Phineas Gage, uh, and, uh, and you know, so there you go, right? I mean, it. So who knew, right? I mean, I've been playing. I've been playing about. You, know, you can do the math on this, but I've been playing about 16 years now, 17 years, and, uh, and you know, and yeah, I, am I any good? When, when people ask me if I'm any good, what I tell them is I'm, I'm. I'm better than anyone who doesn't play. I'm not really as good as anybody who does. Like anybody who says I'm a sax player, they're they're better than me. But if anybody if anybody says, well, you know, I played in high school, yeah, I'm better than them. That's that's awesome. <laughs> um, I, I think it's so cool. I yeah, I, I have this that sort of same mentality. I I mean, the last four years, I learned to skateboard, which I mean, I'm 38, mm -hmm. so there's. I don't know how many 36 year olds uh, go out and decide they're going to learn to uh, skateboard by watching videos and, on YouTube and live. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, had a, I had a girlfriend at the time who was just like, you're too old to be doing this. I, oh, I tried to take a, a class. This didn't work out very well. I tried to take a class to learn to do a backflip like two years ago. And huh? uh, that didn't quite work as well. I think I'm going to re, I'm, I actually want to try it again, but I just like need to do a few months of stretching before I tried it. Uh -huh. But I, I picked up yeah. uh, piano, guitar. Um, nice. The podcast is really awesome because it allows me to engage with lots of people and learn lots of different things. But there's, I, I agree with you. And, I, and it's funny when I look back, um, the Dyson example is great, but I also think of like, Henry Ford and the story about how he was building cars and then walked into a meat pack, uh, um, a butcher, like a, a, a place where they're cutting up meat. Yeah. And, uh, and he saw that and came up with the idea for the assembly line. Or I think right. about a Steve Jobs speech at, at Stanford where he talks about, he goes back and he reflects on his life and talks about how taking calligraphy ended up later on, uh, in the Mac computer with all these like cool fonts and nobody had done anything right. like that. And like, yeah. it's, yeah, just like, it's really like this cross pollination of ideas where in my experiences, where innovation in my life comes from. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely right. And that willingness to, to just learn a bunch of stuff without having any idea in the moment why it's going to matter is is so important and on top of that to actually really learn it that is not you know a lot of us are you know we, we say well I'll, I'll expose myself to something so you know I'll, I'll listen to this podcast but then that's it I'm not going to dig any deeper you know and so right now 
people who are listening to this, uh, they're, they're, they're listening to two people who know stuff, but, but they don't know it yet. And they're going to hear us say a bunch of things and that could give you the illusion of understanding. And there's, there's actually a, a concept in psychology called the illusion of explanatory depth, where you believe you understand the way something works, but you don't actually understand the way it works. But, but in order to be able to use the knowledge the way Jobs or Ford or Dyson did, you actually have to understand it, not just, not just be exposed to it. And so that, that, that takes more effort. It, it requires really digging in. It requires following up on some of this by reading something and, and internalizing it and explaining stuff back to yourself. So like, I, I, I absolutely hate TED Talks. And, and, uh, and I say that, I, I always like to point out it's only partially sour grapes. But... Um, but but part of the reason that I hate him is because people listen to these talks in which in which somebody spouts off for 11 or 12 minutes on something that they've over rehearsed. And so everyone listening to the talk leaves that talk thinking they've learned something. But unless they actually try and explain it back to themselves, they haven't learned anything because because the knowledge still resides only in the head of the speaker. And and so if you're really going to learn it, you've got to finish that talk, explain it back to yourself, and then figure out all the stuff that was actually missing in that talk that you'd really need to know in order to know what that speaker knew, and then go and read some stuff to, to learn it. Because, because, and we don't hold ourselves accountable for those details, and then, and then we don't have knowledge that's really useful to be innovative. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website, Craft Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, you feel like a soulmate. Or I, 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 I mean, I've been reading this book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm usually like I bought 40 books in the last three months, so like I'm, I cool. read, a, I read a lot and. And uh, one of the reasons I asked you about what was happening deeper in the brain, because I didn't study neuroscience, but I'm like trying to figure out like, well, what the hell does the thalamus do? And what does the amygdala do? And like, what does the hippocampus do? And what does the prefrontal cortex do? Like trying to understand all these things. And I'm like, ah, when I get a little technical, people are listening, might not fully process it, but maybe they'll (laughs) look these things up. But for me, I like, I, I, as I'm exploring all this stuff, I'm exploring, um, really like at this ex- exploration of wellness, which moves into everything from how the brain works, how is the brain wired, neuroplasticity, all the, these different types of therapy, uh, how the body um, holds trauma, how food affects the brain. Like, uh, and I, cause I'd realized people ask me like, well, what, what's the biggest challenge 
I'm actually being considered a host, a co-hosted TV show. They're supposed to make a decision in the next few days. And, and, um, they asked me like, well, what's the, what do you think the biggest challenge is? I'm like, well, we teach all the technical stuff of how do you meet and connect with someone. But if I peel it back, it's, it's anxieties. If I peel that back, it's trauma. It's like, that, that's what's keeping people from, from connecting with each other. It's like all these like little things that happen that change our behavior and, or big things that happen that we don't realize, or we do realize. And like that keeps us just connected. But, um, I realized I'm like, I'm, I'm a dating coach, but I'm in the wellness business. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if you're not well, you can't be, you can't be, if you're, if you can't be good to yourself, how are you going to be good to anybody else? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a great point, right? You know, it's, it's an absolutely great point. And, uh, and, and, you know, and we are wired. I mean, another aspect of motivation that I've spent a lot of time talking about is we, we are wired to do the thing that feels right in the short term rather than the thing that's right in the long term. But wellness requires a lot more activity that's that's right in the long term and so we have to learn to do things that are right for us in the long term and then to enjoy those things because of course you don't want to live a long time and hate every moment of it so so it's you know the trick is to is to develop habits that relate to behaviors you enjoy doing but that also have good long-term consequences for you. So, you know, I mean, you know, there's great data these days that the people who are most likely to stick to an exercise routine are the people who like the exercise they're doing. So, so, you know, if you, if you hate, if you hate the exercise you're doing, you're going to have a really hard time enjoy, you know, continuing to do it. You can get yourself to do it for a while, but you're going to stop because you hate it. So if what you like to do is to take a long walk with a friend, then take a long walk with a friend. Stop, you know, stop forcing yourself to to, to go on a treadmill if you hate it. That's uh, such a great point. It's removing that constant friction that we might have in our mind because we're like, we really don't want to be doing this. Uh, we want to be doing something else. And and removing that friction makes it so much easier. And or doing that task makes it so much easier. And I, and I was thinking, um, this is a side tangent back to your example of, uh, learning to play the saxophone, and like you, like from my perspective, here's a, like you're a man and you have an interest. You're like, I want to do this. I'm going to get over whatever's holding me back. You try it, you explore it, and then you start to get that like probably gain that satisfaction of of developing competency and 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 learning and growing. And and now it's evolved into a situation where you said you've been in band for 16 years, but you there's probably community that's around that and like oh yeah, this like feeling of being present and in sync with other people while you're playing and like i i don't know it's just interesting how these things following our instincts and exploring things that um feel right to us how they evolve into things that we may or may not realize that we're getting into but as long as those things feel right we just keep going with it yeah absolutely absolutely it, it, it just it opens up all kinds of possibilities you know it, it and people complain a lot well i'm stuck in a rut well you're not going to get out of that rut if you don't actually put effort in to, to do something differently. And so, you know, I, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't take up the saxophone thinking, yeah, someday I'm going to play on sixth street in Austin, <laughs> you know, I mean, in, you know, in the clubs, I mean, we, you know, we opened, we opened for the Scatolites one night who are great, you know, old, old line ska band, which, you know, I, I, I didn't think, yeah, I'm doing this because someday, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to play clubs, but, but it, it, you know, it evolved into that. You just keep doing the next thing because everything you try opens up other opportunities. Uh, you know, I do I do a podcast here in Austin uh, that that's produced by our local NPR uh, affiliate. Uh, the show's called Two Guys on Your Head, and I you know I never I never thought yeah someday I'm going to be a podcaster, 
Um, but but I got out there doing a live. I was I was I spent a lot of time trying to bring cognitive science to a broader audience, and I uh, I, I went with a friend of mine and did a uh, a live event at at a local venue that was produced by the NPR station. And and soon after that, they came back to us and said, um, "Would you guys like a show?" <laughs> and That's and awesome. we stared at them. We're like, "What are you What are you talking about?" And they said, "Yeah, yeah." If you listen to NPR, they said they said think car talk, but for the mind. And we're like, oh yeah, we could do that. That's and, cool. And so you know, and then we went in, and 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 this was like five years ago. We went into the station and taped a pilot, and they uh, they gave us a they gave us seven and a half minutes on on Fridays, uh, and 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 uh, they said tape four episodes, and uh, we we went in, we taped four, and midway through the month of August in 2013, they said, yeah, uh, tape a few more. And uh, I always tell people they never told us to stop, so we didn't. <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> that's awesome I, I i have a question i was thinking as you were saying about this this idea of having a, a diverse range of experiences and and how like i find like these different sort of plot points or these different points like it gives me diversity of of thought mm -hmm. what's what's yeah. ha happening in the brain yeah so so uh, the thing about your ability to navigate the world is is that what makes humans different from all of the other uh, species is we don't come pre-programmed with a lot of, of behaviors. We have a few that allow us to survive, you know, as infants. But a lot of what makes humans so special is this capacity to lay down memories uh, of all different kinds that guide the way that we behave off into the future and language supports that and our intense social interactions support that. And so what the brain does is, I mean, one of the, one of the things the brain is really good at is just serving up memories to you so that you are instantly reminded of things in any situation that tell you what it is you're supposed to do. And, and so what, what's really powerful about that is, is that, on the one hand, you can walk into brand new situations and be reminded of other things you know that that give you insight into how to how to deal with that situation. But the other thing that's really powerful is the more different things you know, and the more different things, not just that you've been exposed to conceptually, but also the more things you know how to do, the more different things that your brain can suggest to you to to do in that situation. Because, because there's, there's two pieces to this that are important. One is all of the knowledge you have allows you to be, to be reminded of things that allow you to notice things in the environment that, that might allow you to uh, approach something or someone in a different way. But on top of that, there's a lot of work in the relationship between mind and body. So the more activities that you're good at, the more that you can then notice things in the environment that 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 help you to act in the world. So, for example, by studying music, I hear music differently. I, I hear chord changes. I hear I hear things that I could do if I were playing that music at the time, which has enhanced my experience of 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 watching music. You know, I was I was lucky enough to be sitting in the front row at a December's concert about, geez, uh, maybe, maybe a month and a half ago. I don't know how I ended up in the front row, but you know, why not? And, and what I loved about that concert was, was watching 
the communication among all the musicians on the stage. We were sitting close enough that you could watch them looking at each other, like somebody somebody played a wrong note, and you could see everyone look at that person and the other one sort of, you know, give a little apology. And it all happened really quickly. But in many ways, because I because I've been on stage with with musicians and and been in that situation where I or somebody else screwed up and everybody's communicating about it, you know, you you just you you notice a lot of those things faster. You know, so your actions, your your ability to act on the world feeds back and affects what you even see about the world. And so so having that diverse set of experiences changes what you see and changes what's possible for you because of all the things that you know. Wow, that's so powerful. Um, I had told a, a friend, I said, you know, I, I picked up drawing over the last few years to start kind of sketching and drawing more. And I said, you know what? I, I draw like as a form of expression, but honestly, I, I draw to see things better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and I, and music is, is similar. Like I don't ever think that I'm going to, and I don't imagine myself, like I like Bob Dylan. I don't ever imagine myself as being Bob Dylan, but I, but it allows me to hear his and other people's music with another level of depth. And so I definitely hear, I hear what you're saying. You talked about this connection between mind and body. And it's funny, I've been hearing a lot of things about how, how like our, our gut is our second brain and how um, the body stores trauma and the fascia tissue and like, like this, these different things have been coming up in some of my other conversations. When you think about um, the connection between the body and the mind, what types of things come up for you? You know, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's everything, right? I mean, well, give, but I'll give you a couple of examples. So for example, just the activities you're able to perform influence what you see in the world. So I was, I was reading this great article several years ago about the Austin parkour club. So all these people who, you know, jump over fences and climb up fire escapes and all that stuff. And, and every single one of them talked about the fact that, that since taking up that discipline, they see the world differently. And, and that's actually literally true. If, if you know how to scale a wall, you actually look at that wall and see handholds where the rest of us just see bricks. So, so the things that you're able to perform literally influence what the world looks like to you or sounds like to you. So that's a part of it. I mean, I hear chord progressions now and I hear, you know, if I listen to a jazz solo, I hear what the musician's trying to do because, because that's, that's what I've trained myself to do. So that's one, that's definitely one piece that's going on. But another piece has to do just with, you know, that relationship between, you know, keeping your body healthy and, and your mind. So for example, one of the things we know now is that even moderately high blood pressure can, can actually cause damage to your brain that can lead to deterioration in, 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 as you get older. And so, and so, you know, people complain about being, you know, you turn, you turn 50 and suddenly there's a cognitive apocalypse and, and, you know, everything's going to fall apart. And, and, and the fact is that as you get older, you know, your, your brain is, is becoming less coordinated, even though, even though if you absent real brain injury, you, you, you actually reach your cognitive peak in terms of knowledge and power in your late sixties. So, you know, people should chill a little bit. Um, but, but, you know, I think, I think one of the things that we need to understand is you got to take care of yourself. Because, because if you start, you know, if you put on a little bit of weight, your blood pressure goes up a little bit, you know, it's not, it's not that you're in danger necessarily of, you know, a stroke, but you can do other things to your brain that will 
that will cause you to, to feel less good. And I, I know plenty of, you know, it's easy to put on a couple of pounds a year. I, you know, you put on a pound a year starting in your late twenties and in your, and by the time you're 45, you're 20 pounds overweight, you know, and, and, and that's a lot of extra weight to carry around and it, and it starts having these just nagging little consequences. And then what happens is people start shedding activities. You know, you suddenly get tired a little bit. So you think, well, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'll stay home instead of going out, you know, and, 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 and that's, that's how you get old. Right. And so, so if you feel good, if you, if you do a little bit of stuff to take care of yourself, if you eat a little bit better, you know, if you, if you, if you don't eat just what's convenient, but also what, what might be good for you, that, that has, that pays dividends in energy and, and, and that energy can then be, can be put towards, uh, you know, learning new things or engaging in new activities or meeting new people. It's all of that matters. And then on top of all of that, right, you got to, you got to sleep. So we're a chronically underslept society. You know, everybody gets too little. I tell you, there's an easy test for whether you're getting enough sleep, which is sit down and read a book at two 30 in the afternoon. And if you're still awake 10 minutes later, you're getting enough sleep. And if you find yourself falling asleep on the page at 2, at 2, 2.30 in the afternoon, you're not sleeping enough. And if you're not sleeping enough, not only can't you really engage with the world effectively while you're awake, but it, your brain is cleansed by sleep, literally cleansed. Your brain actually goes through and clears toxins out while you're sleeping. And on top of that, it solidifies memories. So, so you, actually, you actually continue learning in the, in the various stages of sleep both conceptual knowledge as well as procedures you're learning. So you practice this. I practice the saxophone a little bit, then I sleep and I get better at whatever it was that I practiced because my brain is solidifying those skills while I'm asleep. All of that is, is really critical, a really critical relationship between mind and body. And, and we just, you know, we don't take care of ourselves. Wow. That's so fascinating. Um, a couple of things come up. You talked about sleep. Uh, you talked about food. I started also thinking while you said that about, stress and social like social activities and how how these things seem to affect my own cognitive function and i'm curious like for somebody who wants to optimize their the health of their brain what types of i mean do those additional things that i added come into play i feel like they affect me like what what is it what should somebody be focused on if they want to optimize their their brain's health yeah. So in addition to the things that we talked about, two others that matter a lot, right? One, I mean, social interaction matters a lot. The, you know, we, the human brain is, is wired for social interaction. We, we survive as a species, not because of our fearsome physical prowess. We've dominated planet Earth because we cooperate. So we have lots of brain mechanisms that are all about connecting with other people. We have to make sure we do that. We have to we have to go out and sit and have coffee with people. We have to we have to have conversations, you know. It's and 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 we have to have relationships above and beyond, you know, romantic relationships. You know, these days we we you know people get in a relationship and it's great to be all caught up in it early on, but at some point you have to just you have to have a complete life, you know, whether whether it's people at work or friends. You you just you have to you have to maintain a set of social interactions that 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 makes you feel better and it makes you feel more connected to the world. And that's an important one, which, by the way, means, you know, if you're going to get involved in listening to music and stuff like that, protect your ears. Because if you if you lose your hearing, it's hard to engage with people socially. 
you know, you're sitting in a, in a crowded restaurant, you can't understand what anybody's saying. You stop going to crowded restaurants and you're missing out on, on a whole sphere of activity. So, so that's one, one set of things. And then, yeah, stress is another one. Stress, stress is damaging in a lot of ways. I mean, long-term stress obviously has, has bodily uh, influences. It can, you know, it, it, we're, we're, we're not, we, we're not feeling our best when we have chronic stress, but even in the short term, one of the things that stress does is it narrows what's called your working memory capacity, which is the amount of information you can hold in mind at the same time, which means you make less good decisions. Uh, less, you're not good at complex decision making when you're, when you're really stressed out. So, so you, you want to find ways to reduce stress and that means understanding what stress is. So here's another, another bit of cognitive science that those brain structures deep in the brain, they don't communicate that well with the outer cortex. So, so, you know, when you try to introspect about why am I doing what I'm doing, you'll find you don't know exactly why you're doing what you're doing because the motivational system isn't that well connected to all of the great storytelling areas of the brain, you know, the, the, and the language centers. So, so when you introspect, you're not 100% sure exactly what your motivational system is doing. The way the motivational system communicates with the rest of the brain is, is through the feelings you have. And so when things are going well for you motivationally, you feel good. And when things are not going well, you feel bad. And then the kind of emotion you experience depends on, on some other aspects of the way motivation is working. And, and here's the important part. There are, there's, a, there's a distinction in motivation between approach and avoidance, where approach is going after some wonderful, desirable thing, and avoidance is trying to avoid some noxious, terrible thing. And when you are in an avoidance mode because there's some negative thing out there, the emotions you experience are... Uh, fear and anxiety and stress if you haven't successfully avoided it and relief when you do avoid it. And so, and so here's the problem, right? When you're experiencing a lot of stress, what that means is you're constantly in a mode in which there's something out there you're trying to avoid. And what that means is the best possible outcome for you at the end of each day is that you have successfully avoided whatever it is and you get to feel relief and who, who says to you, my goal in life is just to feel relieved? I mean, we want joy and happiness and satisfaction. And it turns out joy, happiness, and satisfaction are the emotions you experience when you attain some beautiful positive outcome. That is when you're in an approach mode. And so, so in addition to finding ways to quiet ourselves when we're feeling stressed, we actually have to flip motivational systems. We have to find beautiful, desirable, wonderful things that we want in our lives and go after them. Because when we go after them, that's that moment that we can experience a transcendent moment of joy and happiness and satisfaction. And most of us spend so much time focused on catastrophe and, the, and, 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 and escape from catastrophe. That we don't that we don't put ourselves motivationally in states where we have that opportunity to feel joyous. Wow, that, I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, I'm thinking about some applications to my own life, I, um, or things that I've had to change. I realized that probably four months ago, I just had to block all the news sites on the internet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I, and um, it's not like I, I was really cared about that stuff. I mean, I I used to run political campaigns, but I realized that constantly hearing. Uh, hearing gloom and doom every single day was like essentially an attack on my psyche and yeah. uh i was causing me to be in reaction mode all the time so i had to cut them in order to create space so that i could think about other things 
And, yeah, and uh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say, you know, and, and think about relationships, right? I mean, a lot of times you get in a relationship and for a moment it's wonderful. And then you start worrying about, I don't want to screw it up. And now, and now you're constantly in a, in a, in a stress mode of, am I, am I going to mess this up? And then, and then, okay, I did that okay, right? I'm relieved. And, and that's, that's no way to enjoy a relationship. I mean, you gotta, you gotta, you know, you gotta get out there and do fun stuff. You gotta, you gotta find enjoyable things and say, this is what I, you know, my, my moments of joy are going to happen because I'm going after something wonderful. And it makes me think a lot about this idea of intent. And yeah. like I hear that a lot in mindfulness, like, oh, what is your intent? What is your intent? What is your intent? What is my intent? And uh, just having some level of clarity and destination to move towards that one might be excited about. So that way you can begin the journey. Because if, if there isn't some type of external destination that we're trying to get to, then we just sort of end up in the same spot. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. We're just wandering around only to, only to end up in the same place we were. One of the other things I thought about while you were talking about um, playing the saxophone and in your sleep, right? Or this idea that your brain's trying to put these things together. Like uh, w- one of the other things that's come up in conversations is just this idea that sometimes um, unresolved issues will like, we'll end up dreaming about them. Um, is that the same type of process where somebody's trying to still figure out how to solve something that they couldn't solve? And I, I mean, what, what, what's happening with the brain? Yeah, so so the the brain's got a variety of different sleep stages, and and it seems to be doing different things in different stages. So, for example, this this learning of procedures that you're doing while you're asleep, a lot of that seems to happen during during some of the stages of what's called non-REM sleep. So so there's there's different stages of non-REM sleep, and then there's what we call REM sleep. That's the rapid eye movement sleep where, where people seem to be dreaming during that. So if you do a sleep, people do sleep studies, you know, you wake somebody up when they're in non-REM sleep and they don't report that they were dreaming, but you wake up during REM sleep and they'll tell you all about some weird dream they had in REM sleep. There's a lot of this, you know, sort of the unresolved kind of social issues and things like that, where you're actually kind of chewing through something conceptual. Um, that that's the sort of thing that can come up during REM sleep. Uh, in non-REM sleep, you're doing a lot more of this procedural stuff. So, so you're solidifying something you learned to do. So if you're, you know, playing, learning to play tennis or whatever it is, there's all this motor action that you learn to do. And, and those patterns then, then get recapitulated in the brain and, and really locked in while you're, while you're sleeping. So, so different stages of sleep actually have different elements. And this is why you need a full night's sleep because, because you cycle through different stages at, at different times during sleep. So you get more REM sleep, for example, late in your sleep cycle and you get more of the non-REM sleep early in the sleep cycle. So, so those, those things like being able to work through kind of complex problems that you might have. If you're not sleeping enough, if you need, say, seven and a half hours of sleep and you're getting six hours of sleep, a lot of what you're missing out on is a lot of that late REM sleep that, that might have actually helped you to, to kind of come to peace with some of the conceptual stuff you're dealing with. It's so interesting because one of the things that comes up for me as you say that is it makes me wonder why the brain would evolve these different components of sleep. Mm. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and, 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 you know, think about sleep in general. I mean, it's crazy. We spend roughly a third of our lives asleep. It means by the time you're 45 years old, you'll, you'll have been asleep for 15 years. 
I mean, it's, it's, so it's, it's an amazing, it's just amazing to think about why in the world the brain evolved sleep mechanisms in general. And, and I think, you know, you can, you can make arguments about from an evolutionary standpoint at night, it's probably a good idea for a creature like us to be out of the way and quiet so that we don't attract too much attention from something that might want to eat us. But, but then what's fascinating is, all of this time, your brain is an incredibly uh, energy-hungry organ, right? Your brain is roughly 3% of your body weight. It uses about 20 to 25% of your daily energy supply. And so, and so it means your brain is, even when you're asleep, your brain is looking to do stuff to make sure that it's optimizing its function because it's, it's got so much physiological overhead in, in, in energy terms. And so, and so part of the reason that it goes through all of these cycles to continue learning, to cleanse itself, to, to, to help you, uh, work through conceptual difficulties is because your brain wants to make sure that it's not wasting all of that energy, uh, that, that it's expending, uh, just because your body's not moving. Two things that came up from early in the conversation, um, as, as you were saying that one was, um, and I'm not really sure why they popped up, but you talked about how language, we use that, um, our use of language to control thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I thought about how the sophistication of our language um, mm-hmm. could either be advantageous or detrimental in that process, yeah. right? Because, sure. um, and I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Well, yeah. And of course, language is the tool and any tool can be used for good or for ill. You know, hammer's a wonderful thing if what you need to do is to, is to, you know, bang in a nail and it's probably not such a good thing if you're trying to bang somebody else with it. And, and I think language is the same way. You know, we can use language to control our thought, to really deliberate about something, to, to make a serious effort to understand the world and to understand other people and to communicate. But we can also use language to try to confuse people. We can use language to try to, 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 um, to lie to other people and to ourselves. You know, you can talk yourself into almost anything or out of almost anything, and you'll use language to do that. So, so I think, you know, we have to recognize it's a, it's a tool and, and to recognize that what we're doing is communicating to others and to ourselves about our intentions, our beliefs, and, and then to ask ourselves, what are the relationships that we want to have with other people and with ourselves, and how can we do our best to be true to that, to, to that, to that long-term goal? You know, it's, so it's, it's, you know, so, so that's, I think, the way we need to approach our communications with others and with ourselves is, is what are we, what are we really trying to accomplish with our lives? Who, you know, who, who, what do we want out of this? You know, we, we get one shot at this and we're going to make a lot of mistakes, but, but if we, if we're willing to learn from those mistakes and, and to try to, try to improve the relationships that we have with others, then, uh, then I think we, you know, we can, we will be able to look back on our lives and feel good about it. And this relates to one last thing, right? Which is, so there's all this research on regret that shows that as you get older, you tend to regret things you didn't do rather than things you did. So when you're young, you regret dumb things you did. But when you're older, uh, the, re- the research suggests what you regret is the stuff you didn't do in your life. So what each of us should do is to take advantage of our mental ability to, to time travel. Project yourself to the end of your life look back on your life and say, what will I regret not having done? And then live your life in ways to minimize your regrets about the things, about the opportunities that you'd miss out on while you're still young enough to actually be able to do it. One more question, and I know we're sort of getting towards the end of time. (laughs) Um, You mentioned earlier about 
about how memories pop up. And sometimes I feel like the, the memories that pop up, whether they're triggered by a, like a smell or a, a scent or um, something visual, right? We become activated and these memories pop up. They don't always serve us. So how, how does somebody like reprogram um there and maybe it goes back to something you talked about earlier how do we change some of these things that might pop up so that they're they're more successful does it just take time does it take these diverse sets of experiences that we were talking about moving in a different direction um well i think i think what we have to do is we we just we have to we have to create that varied set of experiences and we and we have to ask you know part of part of what prevents us from doing that is is fear which which can come from all sorts of sources. I mean, sometimes we understand why we're afraid of something. Sometimes we don't. But but the fact is that that um, it's really important for everybody to ask themselves, really, what's the worst thing that can happen right now? And and in most of our lives, the worst thing that can happen isn't really that bad, you know. And and so and so that's you know because what holds us back from trying things. You know, what would hold somebody back from running their own podcast or giving a public speech or asking somebody out on a date is, is, you know, is a fear of what could happen. And, and, and so you got to ask yourself, what's the worst thing that could happen? You know, what's the, the worst thing that happen? You're going to ask somebody out on a date and they're going to say no. Yeah, life goes on. Uh, you're going to give a public speech and, and it goes terribly. That's the worst thing that could happen. You know what? Nobody's going to remember it it's not going to it's not going to ruin your life so so get up and do it because because what you discover is the worst case scenario almost never happens anyhow and and often things are much better than you anticipate i'll give you one quick example of this there's really cool research um that that nick epley did um on on having conversations with random strangers on airplanes and and on and in commuting and stuff like that so so people don't do that people don't just have conversations with other people and they and they don't do it because they're afraid that the conversation is going to be horrible they're going to be stuck talking to some person who's miserable and and so and so they they sit in silence on air you know people get onto airplanes and immediately put air, earbuds in and they just you know signal they don't want to have anything to do with you Turns out if you just, you know, he did these studies where he just made people get onto buses and trains and stuff and have conversations with the people next, next to them. And basically, everybody loves the conversations they have. They have a wonderful time. They end up meeting new people and having great conversations. So, so they miss out on these wonderful life experiences because of a fear of something that basically never happens. And, and I think that's, there's an extended version of that in which I think we miss out on many of life's peaks because we're afraid of of something bad that might happen when the fact is the worst case scenario really isn't that bad. Just go for it. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Or this has been absolutely awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. And if you're listening to this, you want to learn more about Art, his books, um, anything that he does, I'm going to post some links on the Craft Christma website within the description of this podcast so that you can find out about him more easily. Anything else you want to say to the audience before we get off here? Uh, just do it. This was great fun though. I appreciate it. This was, I had, I had a great time. Awesome. Thanks again. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. 
And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.